We did Proverbs for a season. We're moving now into a new book, maybe prompted by a, I saw this survey, and the survey was interesting to me because it asked Americans who, depending on what poll you look at, between 65 and 70% of Americans identify as Christians. So it just asked questions, and, and the first was just broadly for everybody. And so it asked all people in America, whether you identify as a Christian or not, they asked, what's the Holy Spirit? Right? So 60% of Americans said, the Holy Spirit is a force. I think, well, did you get that from Jesus or from George Lucas? Because that sounds like Star Wars to me. Right? And then they started to narrow down, there's a bunch, and they started to narrow down to evangelicals, like what we would identify as. And they asked evangelicals some questions. The first one was, do all religions worship the same God? 51% said yes. The slight majority of evangelicals say, hey man, doesn't matter, we all worship the same God. Well, that's interesting. And then the second question was, and the way it was phrased was interesting, is Jesus the highest of God's creation? Right? So it's phrasing it interesting, and I think they were trying to probe a little bit. Is Jesus the highest of God's creation? This is the evangelicals. 78% said yes. Jesus is not created. Jesus is God in the flesh, existing through eternity. But 78% of evangelicals were like, oh yeah, he's, oh yeah, that must be what he is. Hmm. And then they asked, is abortion wrong? This is the evangelicals. Only 52% said Yes, abortion is wrong. So I read that and I just thought, wow. Hmm. I don't want us to be in that crew. So I started trying to think about what's a book that does a really good job of practical theology. Because theology is great, but it should be practical. It should actually lead you to something, right? It shouldn't just be all head knowledge. It should move you to be a kind of person And to respond in a way, the word should become flesh, I guess is a real simple way of putting it. That's ultimately what you want. Where the word just begins to saturate you and change you. So I grabbed 1 Peter. And I love Peter because he's a fisherman, he's salt of the earth, he's hyper-practical. But if you've read 1 Peter, here's what's amazing about this book. It is deeply theological. He is a brilliant, brilliant man. So we're just going to charge through... First Peter, and the amazing thing about First Peter is it's going to hit on all these issues, but he does it in an amazing way. So grab your Bible, open with me. We're just going to read two verses, and then we're going to look at two words, and then we're going to look at one word. So it's going to be simple. That does not mean that it will be short, though. So First Peter, chapter one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That is a power-packed sentence. 
It's unbelievable how thick, what Peter covers in that little phrase right there. He talks about our election. He talks about how we're all homesick. We're not home yet. He talks about God's omniscience, the Trinity, sanctification, justification, cleansing. It's unbelievable how dense that little phrase is. It's incredible to me. So part of my job as a pastor is, yes, to inform and to inspire and to be an example, to know you and to be known by you, all those things. Today, I'm going to center in on information. Because there's a little phrase in here that I love. It's this phrase, elect exiles. Think about that for a second. Just surface level, what does elect mean? What does exile mean? You could say it like this, modern English would be, you're a wanted reject. That's an elect exile. You're a wanted reject. It's like an oxymoron, right? Like jumbo shrimp or pretty ugly or black light or country music or (laughs) childproof. That's an oxymoron. Political promise, right? It's like one of those. It's like elect exile. What? And so you could grab both those words, but the controversy I actually want to talk about is one of those words. And it's this word, elect, or election. So there has been a debate for probably over 400 years, but it got pretty serious 400 years ago. There's been a debate on what does election mean? When the Bible talks about you and me being elect or God's election, what does it mean? And there's two groups that have formed out of this, the Calvinists and the Arminianists, right? And both of them have this acronym to like explain their theology. So the Calvinists have this thing called TULIP. TULIP stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the, fra- of the, uh, perseverance of the saints. Arminianists have their facts, F-A-C-T-S. F is freedom of grace, A is atonement for all, C is conditional election, T is total depravity, so both of them have that one in check, and then the S is security in Christ. And these two systems, 400 years ago, have kind of gone and chugged away at denominations and kind of divided evangelicals into those groups. Those that say, hey, we're Calvinists, and those that say, hey, we're Arminianists. And if you know church history, Wars have been fought because of these two systems. People have died because of these two systems. Read about Calvin's Geneva after his death and what happens there. It's incredible to me, right? Over these two ways of just talking about how we got saved. Like, no one for 400 years has been able to solve this debate until this morning. (laughs) I'm kidding. Kind of, right? And it's really real simple. It's, the question is, how did we get saved? Did we have a choice in the matter? The Calvinists say, hey, God chose you. He elected you, period. That's how it happened. 
The Arminius say, no, God woos. And God's goodness brings people to repentance. And God speaks, but then the individual has a free will that then he submits and says, okay, I'm in. Right? So that's, one has free will, one doesn't. So which is right. Whenever I have a question on the Bible, guess what I do? I read the Bible. That's like where I go. Because here's what I think, and this is what the Bible says. It's 1 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is profitable. All scripture. There's no filler in this book. It wasn't like God said, you know what, that's a little short. Let me add a book. All scripture is profitable. Some is much more difficult, no doubt about it. Some texts are really easy to understand and get, but all scripture is profitable. All of it. That we can be trained, that we can be informed, that we can become really formed into a certain kind of people. So here's what I love about the Bible. God could have given you and me a systematic theology book. And in seminary, I had to read a bunch of systematic theology books. I had to know Calvinism. I had to know Wesleyanism, which is a little bit different. And I had to know Arminianism. And I had to be able to prove it, right? So I read the systematic theologies. Here's what happens when you read systematic theology. Somebody sent me this picture. <laughs> right? I think I had a bottle as well. I was just like, ugh, right? Did God do that? Is that what this book is, systematic theology? No, people took it, put it in a blender, and then poured it out into their molds. That's really what systematic theology does. And I'm not against systematic theology, but you, you bring presuppositions to every system. That's what you do. You have to. So what I love about the Bible is this. God gives us stories. Like the Bible is one giant story. That's really what it is. It's a story that leads to Jesus. Everything in it is leading to, here's the answer, here's why there's a necessity for God to become flesh and dwell among us. And it's stories. It's over and over stories. And who doesn't love story time, right? How do you get a kid engaged? Do you give them systems of theology and rules and laws? No, how do you give a, get a system? How do you get a kid engaged? You say, hey, let me tell you a story. God knows how you and I are wired. Let me tell you a story. And in the story, in narrative in the Bible, is incredible theology. So we're right now on Wednesdays, traveling through the book of Exodus. Exodus is God's theology in story, right? The big questions are covered in Exodus. Will God do something about evil? Well, watch what he does to Pharaoh. Does God care that I suffer? Listen to what God does when he responds to the prayers and the cries of his people that are suffering, right? Why does God wait, right? You, every big question you have is actually covered theologically, in narrative, in the book of Exodus. It is a brilliant book. Because God knows, hey, I'm going to tell you a story. And that's going to tell you about me. A lot more than me giving you a system. Okay? Read the Gospels again. Jesus will be asked the theological question of the day. How does Jesus answer most questions? Let me tell you a story about a man that was coming from a far country. And they're just like, come on, just give me the answer. He doesn't. He tells them stories. But inside of those stories, those narratives, it's packed with theology. So when I think about salvation and this idea of election, I think, well, is there a story 
That will help us understand it, maybe. Instead of going to a system where we turn into these babies that fall asleep, maybe there's a story that might help explain how you and I get saved, or if you're not saved, the process by which you can be saved. Is there a story? Well, there is. It's called the book of Acts. And it's like, divinely, there are three salvation accounts that are back to back to back. It's like God was saying, hey, let me draw you a picture. This is a really complicated thing, so let me draw you a picture of what it means to be elect. And by the way, Peter was around in all three of these accounts where people get saved, right? So when it comes to election, this massive subject, I want to tell you a story. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 8, and we're just going to go through three stories that the Bible presents of how somebody gets saved. And maybe out of these three stories, we can make some assumptions of what it looks like to be saved, okay? So story number one is Acts chapter 8, and it's the story I just call of a broken seeker. Pick it up, verse 27. So Steve, or Philip, excuse me, is told, hey, go down there. I got somebody you need to talk to. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah, and the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. This is a broken seeker. Let's look at him for just a second. Number one, verse 27 tells us that he was the chief official of Candace the queen in charge of all his treasure. This dude is wealthy. He has cash money. He's your Jeff Bezos he is your um, Bill Gates. He's your Federal Reserve Chairman. When he speaks, markets change. They freak out. They do. They're like, "Oh no, what's happening here?" Right. So he is extremely wealthy or powerful. Excuse me. He's wealthy. Number two. He has two things. He has. It says his own chariot. He's not leasing it. He's not borrowing it. It's his own four horsepower Ferrari. His chariot. He's also. It says reading the scroll of Isaiah. So he's that driver, you know the one? He's swerving all over the desert while he's reading. He's the one that you're like, it is not a library, it's a car. It's not a phone booth, it's a car. It's not a beauty parlor, it's a car. Drive it, please. So he's that dude, he's all over the place. But he's got a scroll of Isaiah. Now why is that important? Because scrolls are expensive. Isaiah is the longest scroll. It is estimated that if you wanted to scroll back 2,000 years ago, it would cost you a year's wage. So whatever you make in a year, that's what it would cost for you to buy the scroll of Isaiah. That's how expensive they were because they were made usually of animal skin. They had to be written exactly. They took a, they took a year to make. So it was a, year's man, a man's year's salary to make you a scroll of Isaiah. So he's got cash money. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah. It was expensive, right? He's also... Not just wealthy, he's educated. He's an accountant. He's reading, you know, reading was not normal 
2,000 years ago. It wasn't, everybody was not literate. So he's very educated. He's powerful. He's wealthy. He's educated. But he's seeking. Right? He's seeking. He's like, hmm. I thought by the time I became top of everything in Ethiopia, underneath only the king and queen, I'd be happy. I thought when I bought my own Ferrari, I'd be happy. I thought when I could study and read, I'd be happy. I thought I would, but I'm not. He's searching. You ever feel that way? You have a checklist in your head and you keep thinking, if I just got this, I'd be happy. And then when you get it all, you're still unhappy. You're still searching. So he decides he's going to make this pilgrimage from Ethiopia down south, and he's going to get in his chariot, and he's going to travel a long ways up to see if maybe the God of Israel has the answer. For whatever is gnawing at me, whatever this angst is in me, maybe Yahweh has the answer for me, right? Maybe I can find it up there. So he's searching, but he's also broken. He's a eunuch. If you don't know what eunuch means, it's Father's Day, so ask your mother. She'll explain it to you. <laughs> Give him a break. Right? He's hurt. He was hurt as a kid. And that pain as a child echoes through his whole life. He'll never have a family. He'll never have kids. He'll never be normal. He'll always be a eunuch. He's hurt. Painfully hurt. And so with all this, his brokenness, his seeking, even though he's attained all this stuff, he decides, I've got to go see if Yahweh has the answer. And I don't know how long it took for him to get up there, but that's not an easy travel. This is a large part of his life, his own money spent to go make this pilgrimage. He gets to the temple. He is excited. Maybe there is some history of, of maybe the queen of Sheba going back and bringing some news of Yahweh back to his country. So maybe he knew something. So he travels up there in his brokenness. He's super excited. Maybe this will finally be it. Gets out of his chariot, begins to walk up to the temple. But before the temple gates, they've actually found it. There was a sign that said, these are the people that are allowed beyond this point. Like sometimes you go into a restaurant or into a store and I'll say, no shoes, no shirt, no service, right? It was kind of like that. It was the details. 8.13, good time to get up. It detailed who was allowed in and who was rejected. And based on Deuteronomy 23, one of the people that was not allowed into the temple were eunuchs. And so he would have walked up there, seen the sign. All the pain, all the agony of his life would be brought back to him. How he was excluded, how he was different, how he was not normal would all be brought back to him in that moment. And I'm sure embarrassed, maybe angry, face flushed, he does a 180, turns around, gets back in his chariot and heads away. Rejected. You ever felt rejection? It's one of the worst emotions, isn't it? You're on the outside. You don't belong. You're not good enough. For something that he didn't do. Something that was done to him. And you'd feel all that way. We've all felt that. 
Maybe it was a relationship. Or if she said, you know what? I just don't see you that way. Can't we just be friends? No, that's not going to work. <laughs> it's not you, it's me. No, it's not, it's me. Because if I was the right person, we'd be doing this, right? All that is here, like deep, deep pain. <sighs> but God, God saw him. And regardless of what that sign said, God grabs this dude named Stephen and says, get down there, talk to him. And you know the story, Stephen hears him reading the prophet Isaiah. Right in this section, it's called the Suffering Servant Songs, the final song about Jesus being rejected, about Jesus being excluded. And he's like, ah, who is this guy? Who's the one that was rejected just like me? And it says that Stephen, starting in Isaiah, do you know that Isaiah is all about Jesus? I took an entire class just on Isaiah. Isaiah is all about Jesus. And so Stephen grabs Isaiah and just says, this is Jesus. Shares with him Jesus. At the end of it, the eunuch says, see here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he's saved. So if you know Calvinism and Arminianism, and you look at this story of salvation, you say, which one does that fit in? Well, man, he's a seeker. That's a little different than Calvinism. Seems maybe to lean a little bit more toward Arminianism. But then God sovereignly grabs Philip and sends him down there, which is maybe more sovereignty and God's, I don't know. I don't know. So then to clarify, we get another story of salvation. Acts chapter 9. Just right next, it literally ends with this guy rejoicing in his salvation and picks up Saul later to become Paul. So chapter 9, the next story. This is the angry hater. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, though if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He is an angry hater. Hates Christianity, hates Christians, hates them. Wants to see them killed just witnessed the killing and approved of the killing of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He's an angry hater. You know people that hate Christianity? It's always interesting to me, like, why do you hate Christianity? Like, I can see hating cancer or hating stuff like that, or racism. Yeah, but hating Christianity? What is, it's so strange to me. Why would you hate Christianity? Maybe you're here and you hate Christianity. Maybe this morning your wife was like, hey, it's Father's Day, let's take a drive. And you ended up here. You're like, why'd you bring me here? <laughs> Welcome, I'm glad you're here. I talked to this guy a couple weeks ago and he was like, Matt, I'll tell you, for the first while at Edgewater, I would come and I would just sit there and I had my arms crossed and I would argue with everything you said. I said, don't worry about it, bro. I'm so used to it. I have five kids, so it happens to me all the time. <laughs> he's like, and, and then I would tell myself, I'm not going back next week. And then I'm back up there that next week. And he ends up getting baptized on Easter a couple of Easter's ago. Right? It's, it's, it's almost like this. He's just angry. Here I eat. And what happens? Now, as he went on his way, 
He approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You guys know the story of Saul. God grabs a hold of him and just says, you're getting saved, period. Against his will. His will is to hate Jesus and hate Christians and to kill them. And God just grabs him and says, uh-uh, you're not doing that. You're getting saved. What does that sound like? Calvinism to me. Working against the intent of Saul. No, you don't have a choice in this. I'm saving you, Saul. Now, we can talk about, you know, you know whatever that means. But later, Paul will actually talk about this and says, I was literally kicking against the goads. When he tells his testimony, he says, I was kicking against this thing that was goading me. Ah! Sounds like Calvinism. Chapter 8, that's an interesting story. Chapter 9, seems like Calvinism. One more. Chapter 10. Back to back to back. It's like God's doing something. I call this the good guy. This is the good guy. He's not broken. He's not angry. He's a good dude. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror. And said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. Brilliant. What Luke does here is awesome. Number one, he gives us a bibliography, right? He's like, there's this dude. His name, or he's a centurion, he lives in, in Caesarea, and he was part of the Italian cohort. The Italian cohort, we'd say today, SEAL Team 6. 82nd Airborne, top of the top. Like, this dude is the man. But he's not just saying that to, to puff this dude up. He's really saying, if you don't believe me that this happened, here's the guy, go talk to him yourself. It's a bibliography that's built into Luke. Luke does it all the time. It was so people could check out his sources. Hey, this is where it happened. This is the dude it happened to. You go talk to him as well and ask him if this is how it happened. I love that. It's not, well, my cousin's uncle's nephew uh, told me about this. This is a direct bibliography of this guy. And here's what amazes me. An angel shows up and it says he was filled with terror. This guy is a war vet of the Roman wars. You ever read about the Roman wars? They're, they're on a level you and I cannot imagine. Read about the battle at Cannae. It's unbelievable. It's Hannibal and all that. The Romans put together their biggest army, 86,000 men. They came after Hannibal. Hannibal had like 35,000 men. He was doomed. He pulled a maneuver that caused the majority of the Roman army to not be able to get at him. So when they charged him, Hannibal just sucked it up. 
and just let his whole army surround the Roman army. And so now the majority of the Roman army is on the inside. They can't fight. Only the people on the perimeter could fight. And what slowly happened is Hannibal, over the course of 24 hours, his men chopped through the entire army of 86,000 men. Hand-to-hand combat, killing the dude with your sword over and over and over and over again. Can you imagine that? We don't even understand war like they, like they knew war. It's the worst casualty ever in a war in one day. That's, this man has seen that kind of stuff. He's seen war like you can't imagine he sees an angel, and what happens? Is he like, yeah, I don't worry about that. He's filled with terror at an angel with everything that he's seen. Have you ever been, like, terrorized to your soul? A couple of years ago, I was trying to surf in Mexico. I don't actually surf. I surf, like, once every five years, so it's never enough to get me good, so I just flounder out there. So I'm in Mexico. Water's warm. It's awesome, and it's clear. The Oregon coast is better to surf in, because you can't see. That's actually better. So it's just crystal clear. And as I'm out there paddling, I'm kind of looking down. I saw a shadow pass under me that I'm going to say was at least 12 feet. I think it was 50 feet long, but I don't want to lie. So it was somewhere 12 feet. It was big. Terror. Like Jesus has walked on water. Peter walked on water. I walked on water. People are like, hey, where'd you go? I walked on water, man. I saw a shadow. I mean, terror. Terror. It's like that over an angel. Angels aren't chubby little cute things with arrows on the Sistine Chapel. Angels are amazing. Read Daniel 9, read Daniel 10, read Daniel 11. Terror. Here's the good news. They're on our side. They're on our side. There's a real spiritual realm out there. The Bible is full of, there's real spiritual realms out there. If you've ever sensed something that just for no reason you're like, Something's wrong right here. I think for a moment, the dimensions have grown thin and you feel something. Good news about angels, they're on our side. They're on our side. So here's this guy, right? He's, he's an amazing dude. He's, he's a good guy. He prays. He is generous. He is what's called a God-fearer. Here's what a God-fearer was. A God-fearer was a Gentile who would go to the synagogue on Saturdays. He'd go to church. He would study the Torah. He would learn about God. He would follow the rules of the Torah, eating the right kind of food, not eating this certain kinds of food, not, you know, keeping the Sabbath holy. He did all those things, but he was not circumcised. So it was a guy that was like totally into it, And then one day he's like, man, I love what you guys are doing here. How do I become a member? And they're like, you got to be circumcised. Yeah, I'm going to be a God-fearer. No thanks. Right? So he's that guy. He's close. He's in, but not quite. He's like, "Eh, yeah, that's a little far for me. I can't do that one. And the angel comes, and the angel says, your prayers and your generosity have been seen and heard by God. He's unsaved right now. But your prayers and your generosity have been seen by God. That's crazy to me. How does it fit total depravity? Because it appears that God is like, hmm, I really like what you're doing. As an unsaved Gentile, I love that you're praying. And I love that you're giving. 
does prayer and giving mean something to God? Boy, it sure seems like it. It seems like it's really important to God. I've heard, I've seen, I love it. And then thirdly and lastly, here's what the angel says. Go get Peter. The angel does not say, hey, bro, you are on the right path. You just keep following your generosity and you keep following your prayer and everything's gonna be good for you. Doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't just say, hey, keep on keeping on, man. You're doing Thumbs up to you. God gives you thumbs up. What does God say to this super good guy who's doing life really well, who's a kind guy, who loves, who's generous? He says to this super good guy, you gotta be saved. You, even though you're doing all this really cool stuff, you have got to be saved. Good people, angry haters, broken seekers, you gotta be saved. You still need to be saved. Okay? Because bad people hurt the world, no doubt, we see it. Violence, anger, that kind of stuff. Bad people, but you know good people hurt the world too? Because good people get into this, they become almost Pharisees at some point. What's wrong with you, man? Look what I did, I pulled myself up. You can do it too. Often good people become these self-righteous, graceless jerks. Not everyone, but it can happen. And God says, sending an angel, go get Peter, right? The angel can't share the gospel. How nutty is that to me? Why don't angels share the gospel? They do it so, better, so much better than you and me. But God has said, mm, 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 mm. Human's gonna do this job. Go get Peter. He has the privilege of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with you. And you and I have that same privilege to this day. And it says angels are like scratching, like we'll see that. Peter's like, angels scratch their heads at this. Like what in the world? Why, why doesn't he use me? I'm so much, I cause terror, man. They would get saved every time. God doesn't do that. He uses you and me. So what does chapter 10 look like? Looks a lot like Arminianism to me. You got, hmm, chapter 8, Calvinism, chapter 9, chapter 10, man, that's Arminianism. Right? Crazy to me. So what does election mean? I'm going to give you, from my standpoint, and I've tried to, tried to, for me, get rid of systems and really read the Bible, and I'm flawed, but this is the way I see it. So here are... Here's the way I think salvation works. And I've written these up. At the end, if you want to take a picture, these will all be together. So number one, God draws all people. And I put a lot of verses in there. You can look them up if you want. God draws all people. For some, the drawing is forceful, like Saul. That's it. For others, it's enabling. Read Lydia in Acts chapter 16. Number two, God's atonement. It's for all people. So you can read 1 Timothy 2.6, 2 Peter 2.1. Number three, God works in both special ways. Cornelius, you got angels, uh, you got visions. So if you know the story of Peter, Peter has all these visions in order for him to make it there and be able to accept Gentiles. And then God works in ordinary ways. Acts chapter two, Peter just preaches the message and God's spirit draws people and they get saved. Number four, God will use the intent of some, Cornelius, like your prayers and your good works, and he'll work against it in others. Saul, ah, you're wrong, dude, and I'm changing you. Number five, God works graciously with all people. Some would call that common grace. 
Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 45. But God's grace works uniquely with each person. I think you see that in Acts chapter 8, 9, and 10. God meets those people where they're at with his grace to bring them to where he is at. And that's God's goal all the time. So God's not limited. Like, I always have to use my grace this way. No way. And which brings me to number six. In the end, God is God. And he does whatever he wants. Psalm 115.3. And we try to box him in and make him fit these categories. And whenever you try to do that, what I found is there's somewhere, there's data in the Bible that just violates your box. Because God is in heaven and he does whatever he wants. The good news about our God is he is good. And he proved his goodness in Jesus. So there is my theology on salvation. So Matt, are you a Calvinist or are you an, an, are you, are, that's a, are you an Arminianist or a Calvinist? I just always say yes. Yeah. Why? Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 8. Yes. Yes. Well, Matt, thanks for the theology lesson. What in the world does this have to do with me? Let me give you two things and then we'll take communion. Number one, how brilliant is Peter? He packs into two sentences a wealth of biblical theology going all the way back to Genesis. It's amazing. It is brilliant. Here's what's amazing. In the 20th century, most Bible scholars said, Peter never wrote this book. He was an uneducated fisherman. There's no way he wrote this book. So what do I believe? If you read the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, verse 13, the Pharisees, the educated, the elite, watched Peter and watched the other disciples And this is what they said about them. They took note of them. That they were unlearned and ignorant men. Ignorant there is idiotes. From where we get our word? Idiots. They looked at them like, you guys are idiots. But that they had been with Jesus. And they were turning the world upside down. And they were preaching a message that was so powerful. It was changing the city of Jerusalem. They took note of them. Like, what in the world happened to them? They used to just go fishing. They dropped out in the third grade. What in the world? Ah, they'd spent time with Jesus. God loves to take our five loaves and our two fish and do something incredible with it. Oh, Peter wrote this book. See, we always discount people because of their past, because they were just fishermen, because they were just. And God says, I love that. I love that. So when Edgewater first started, there was a couple that came up to me and they're like, hey, you went to school with our son. And I went, oh no, this is not gonna be good because I remembered him and he remembered me. And I'm like, well, you know, I've changed a lot since then. I'm not exactly that way. And this is how I knew that their son was worried. The next Sunday he was in church. He came down from Portland and was like, I just had to check this out, man. I could not believe it. You're a pastor? I'm like, yeah, me either. I can't believe it either. God loves to use the Peters of this world. God loves it, right? The ones that don't believe they're qualified. The ones that say, well, I don't have enough education. I can't do it. God says, that's your qualification then. 
If you don't think you can do it, that God, that's God saying, all right, you're the right kind of person for this. The difference between Peter is this. Peter was willing to step out. Jesus is walking on water. I want to walk on water. Okay, try it. Jesus preached messages. Acts chapter two. Well, no one else is talking. I'm going to start talking. What, people are writing letters? Hmm, I'm going to write a letter. And it becomes the Bible. He's like Isaiah. Oh, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. He knew who he was. But then he said to God, here I am, send me. And God says, perfect. You get 60 more chapters, some of the most brilliant theology of Jesus in the Old Testament because of an unclean-lipped Isaiah who just said, use me. The one qualification God wants is for people to say, use me. Use me. And there's no telling what he can do with what seems so simple, five loaves and two fish, right? Number two is this. I don't care if the world has broken you like the Ethiopian eunuch. I don't care if you're angry like Saul. I don't care if you're a really good person. You belong to the Rotary. You give away a lot of money. You donate a kidney to a complete stranger. You must be saved. You must be saved. So the question this morning is simple. Are you saved? Have you surrendered your life to the king? Have you known no matter what you've accomplished or how you've lived your life, you're still out of alignment with his king and his kingdom? You know that. Yeah, I've hurt people. I've done things I should not have done. I've gone places I should not have gone. I'm not aligned with the king. So there's this great message in Acts chapter two. It's Peter preaching it. And he ends by just saying, Repent and be baptized. Repentance is simple. It's changing your mind. Changing your mind about God. I thought God was an ogre. I thought God did not exist. I thought God would never accept somebody as bad as me. Paul murdered Christians. Have you done that? And he was in. Don't make your sin better than the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it's not. It doesn't matter any of those things. It's repent, change your mind, and then be baptized. So we do baptisms. We have water ready every single Sunday. Baptism does not save you. It's not magic waters in there. They came out of the same tap that you get your water at your house from. Here's what baptism is. Baptism is the first act of obedience to a new king. Because Jesus says, go into all the world, make disciples, preaching the good news, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's you're just saying, okay, if I belong to this new kingdom, I'm gonna obey my new king. And the first act of that obedience is baptism, identifying publicly, and I believe in the spirit realm as well, because right after Jesus gets baptized, he gets attacked by the enemy. It's identifying publicly with this new king and his kingdom. It's repent and be baptized. And we don't do the pressure technique. We do believe God draws we do believe that God woos. We just give opportunity for his spirit to work. So if you're here today and you're not sure if you're saved, after we take communion, there'll be people up here that will wanna pray for you and there'll be someone out there that can baptize you. Come to either one and find out. Don't leave with a question mark.
you must be saved. Broken, hater, or good guys, you must be saved. So Jesus, as we come to your table, you said, do this in remembrance of you. Remembering the long story that you fulfilled. Built on failure after failure after failure, you become the one that fulfills the Torah perfectly on our behalf. That cleanses us from sin and unrighteousness. That transforms us into the kind of people that can rule and reign with you forever. This is what we remember. So I pray for any in here who are unclear on salvation. I pray for your spirit to be drawing them today. I pray that they would know that they can be adopted, brought in, no longer excluded because you created a way. There is one mediator between God and man, and it's Jesus Christ. That they would receive that free gift, having their hearts remade, fashioned after you. I pray this in your name. Amen. You are on it, man. Thank you. You are aware. Jesus took, broke the one loaf, signifying we all eat of the same thing. There's not class or distinction in Christianity. There's not Jew, there's not Gentile, there's not free, there's not slave, there's not rich, there's not poor, there's not male, there's not female. Galatians 3, 28. And we all become members the same way at the foot of the cross. So we remember those of us who have received salvation that we came in the same way by the power of your spirit at the foot of the cross. And there's no place for pride. Let's eat together. drink he took the cup he said drink this for the remission of sin that you save us and you cleanse us that sins that beset us hurt us hurt others around us you're the one that can put those sins into remission this day this moment power of your blood and so we drink this cup receiving remission today we confess our sins 
as we drink, cleanse us from that unrighteousness, we pray. Let's drink together.